Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation, the third chapter. <clears throat> I want to point out three different verses before in this chapter that gives us the introduction to three different churches. If you notice verse 1, it says, And, to, and unto the angel of the church in Sardius. Chapter 3, verse 1. Verse 7 says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. And then, in verse 14, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. These three churches... If you'll remember, the last church that we studied was the church of Thyatira, wherein we had worldliness, we had paganism given over to idolatry, we had a lot of things that the Lord was uh, displeased with. And then in this third chapter, verse 1, unto the angel of the church in Sardius, Sardius means those escaping, so there was a reformation from that period and that kind of a church in our history. And we find that Reformation period took place between the years of 1500 and 1750 A.D. And we know that it was a time of revival. And yet, all of, all of this uh, Reformation and those escaping from idolatry, paganism, and a mixture of Judaism and Christianity. And we studied what the Lord said about verse 20 of the previous chapter, when He said, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to to seduce my servants. And so we find that there were those that were escaping. In chapter 3, verse 1, the church of Sardis. But let's read verse 1. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast the name that thou livest and art dead. Now here's a condition that existed even in this church. Maybe it started out with reform and revival. And then it ended up dead. And Jesus introduced Himself as the one that hath the seven spirits of God and the sevenfold plenitude of the Holy Spirit, not seven different spirits, but the sevenfoldness of the Holy Spirit. And the seven stars, remember He said the seven, He talks about the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches in chapter 1, verse 20. The seven stars are the angels, or the messengers of the seven churches. And so he has the seven stars as well. He has the pastors or messengers of these seven churches under his control. And in verse 1 he says, I know thy, look at your Bible now, I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest, and art dead. They had a name. They were dead spiritually. They were dead in the pulpits. They were dead in the pews. 
And they needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, a church that's dead, a dead church is one that has stopped praying and preaching and teaching the Bible and winning souls. A live church is a soul winning church, is a praying church, is a preaching church, is a Bible studying church. If you see how that fits in congregations throughout the land, what is a major emphasis of some churches? Social programs or what? Is it the is it witnessing the lost souls? Is it praying for one another? Is it the preaching and teaching of the Word? That's what it ought to be. And he says in verse 2, Be watchful. He means to wake up and strengthen the things which remain. There was very little that remained in this church, but he wanted them to strengthen that which did remain. You know what we usually do? He says that are ready to die. We bury the remains, don't we? Especially if they remain dead. The things that are dead in a church should be buried. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. He says these are ready to die. I have not found thy works perfect or mature. The word means mature before God. Now this was a church... That should have stood for separation. There should have been an incentive to godliness. But this church was contaminated with the world. And we're going to find out as we read along what the things were that uh, caused them to be in such condition as they were. He says in verse 3, Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. They were to remember what they had heard, what they had received. They were to hold fast to the good things. They were to repent of the evil things. It says, If if therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Jesus warns about His coming. And He says, You need to be alert. You need to watch. In order to need to watch... They needed to repent and to uh, change their ways. In verse 4 it says, Thou hast a few names even in Sardis. Notice, a few. There was all, there's always that faithful few, isn't there? In the midst of churches. That seem to depart from the things of God. There's usually a faithful few that are uh, studiers of the Word, that believe the, the Word of God, that want to stand for the faith. And hold fast, he says, what you've received and heard. There's always a few that want to hold on. And then there are many that, notice it says few. Thou hast a few names. And notice, even in Sardis, even in such a church as this, that existed. Even in such a church that was dead. And things ready to die. And do you know those few in that church can, can, we'll get down to where it says, if any man here, he's going to change things. So a few in that church could change things. And that's what it takes in any local church where you have 
departure from the faith and you have worldliness and you have other things taking over, if a few will just remain faithful, those few faithful can turn the tide and make it different than what it is. And not give up too quick. Don't give up. I used to wrestle when I was in grade school up there. The old police station, we'd get out on the grounds there and wrestle. And uh, Paul will know who I'm talking about. Old Joe Robinson used to wrestle with me. And he was quite a wrestler. But anyway, he could do everything but pin me down. Because I didn't give up. But I wasn't any good at it. But I just wouldn't let him get the best of me. And... And uh, he was bigger than I was and stronger and everything, but I had just a way of squirming out of it some way. <laughs> but, you know, uh, not giving up means a great deal to anyone. And if you'll just hang on, the Lord will, will help you through the situation. And it's up to you and I to, to hold fast and what we've heard and received. But he says in verse 4, Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, now, their garments have to do with their character and their walk. If there's just a few people that will live a godly life and not defile their Christian walk, then the Lord is able to change. He will bless those and He's able to change others by their influence. And it says, And they shall walk with Me in white, for they are worthy. White symbolizes their Christ's righteousness and purity. And they have not defiled their garments, their character, their walk, their lives are straight. Look in verse 5. It says, He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. White raiment is symbolical of the righteousness of the saints. You turn over to the 19th chapter of the book. When the Lord comes, just before He comes back... With power and great glory, 19. Let's look at verse 7 and 8. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife hath made herself ready. That's when we're going to be joined to Christ in a very uh, special relationship. And it says, and to her, the, the, the wife or the bride, the, the believers, it's talking about uh, saved people, believers of this day and age of, of grace. And it says, To her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen. Listen to this. Clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. It tells us what that white linen is. Uh, we're warned in the Gospels that we cannot go into God's presence without on the proper garment. It says, what are you doing in here without having on a wedding garment? And they were cast out. Because they were not properly clothed. So, hold your place where we're studying. Revelation 3, verse 5. Because if I get to going a little faster, I don't want you to lose the, the points here. But in verse 5. He that overcometh. Who is the overcomer? This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. That's First John chapter 5. Remember, we studied it. Turn back a few pages. First John chapter 5, verse 4 and 5. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. Who is the overcomer? Born of God. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. 
And it says this, Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? A true born-again child of God is the overcomer. Now back in our text, 3, verse 5, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will, I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Some have taken this to mean that some people have their name blotted out. But it teaches rather the opposite. It teaches because the original says, I will not, no, not at all, blot his name out. He's just giving you the assurance that it will never uh, be blotted out. And the Greek means to keep their name forever in the book of life. So instead of being a a source of doubt and saying, well, I hope God doesn't blot my name out. God is, Jesus is telling you here that He will not do it. In the Greek, the, the double negative is of greater influence. A double negative in the English language is improper. It's not correct English. But in the Greek, it means it's, it's with emphasis. I will not, no, not at all. I will never blot your name out of the book of life. I will keep your name forever in this book. And so it means assurance. And it says, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So it's a it's a verse of assurance instead of a verse of doubt, as many have turned it around and tried to make it mean something else. As if there was a danger of your name being blotted out. This is the assurance that it will not be. Now, verse 6 says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So all of this is given to admonish us that wherein we have some things that are about to die. And uh, he says, I know thy works. In verse uh, 1, that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. You know, there's a lot of churches have a name that they're alive, but they're dead. They're dead. And if you want to talk about a dead church, a church that does not have uh, the essential ingredients of a scriptural church is really dead. A lot, oh, there may be a lot of people coming, but I'm talking about spiritually. I'm talking about the ingredients that make up the soul winning and the praying and the Bible teaching and the Bible preaching and people that want to study the Word of God and grow in grace and in faith. That's a live church. And if you have people that go the other direction, it's a dead church. They may look like they're living. Have you ever seen people out in the public in some uh, place where they don't belong and they're just laughing and laughing and they're, they're just putting on a front that they're having a wonderful time. And deep down inside, a lot of times those people are the loneliest people in the world. And you come to the house of God and we love one another and greet one another. And there's some real joy and real fellowship there. You know, uh, there's a lot of people who want to go to the saloons. They want to go to the honky-tonks. They want to go to the worldly things all over. And there's some legitimate entertainment and there's some that is not. Some that's not good. But they think that they can find all the happiness by such a social calendar as many of them uh, put on, on their book. And that will not answer But the joy of the Lord is satisfactory. And it will give you some some pleasing and and, and, uh, satisfaction 
that you cannot find with the world. And that's why the church is to be what it is to be. A place of loving God and loving one another and a place of fellowship. So it says here in verse 6, verse 5, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So listen to what we have just studied. Now in verse 7, we pick up the church of Philadelphia. This is the evangelistic and missionary church. And it says, unto the angel of the church of Philadelphia. And by the way, this church, the Lord finds, He does not say one word negative against the church of Philadelphia. He doesn't say anything bad about it. So He says, listen carefully. And to the angel, or the, that's the pastor, the messenger of the church. The pastor has a great responsibility. If you turn to the book of... Um, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. It shows the duty and guide of a pastor and overseer. It says, Obey them that have the rule over you. That rule means guide. It's not rule as to have authority and to dictate. It's not a dictating rule. You have James 13, I mean, uh, Hebrews, Hebrews 13, 17. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy, not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. So every pastor should take a serious and responsible position for the people. And so when Jesus says in our text, hold your place, Revelation 3, verse 7, when he says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? He's saying to that messenger, to that pastor, right? These things saith he that is holy. He that is true. He that hath the key of David. He that openeth and no man shutteth. And shutteth and no man openeth. He says to the pastor of this church, you're to write that the one that is holy and true says these things. He's the one that has the key of David. If you turn to Isaiah 22, I believe it's verse 22. Isaiah 22, 22. It says this, And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. Who has the key of the house of David? Christ. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder... So he shall open and none shall shut. The same thing you find in Revelation. Isaiah twenty two twenty two. So he shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. We'll know who this is if you turn to Luke chapter 1. <clears throat> You'll find in verse 32. When it's prophesying or, or not prophesying but uh, it's. The, the angel's telling Mary that she'll bring forth a son, call his name Jesus. But verse 32 says, He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. See, that's what Isaiah 22, verse 22 said. He'll, he's going to sit upon the throne of David. He's, and uh, he'll open and none can shut. And he'll shut the door and none can open now then, back in our text, hold it in Revelation 3, verse 8. I mean, verse 7. It says, These things saith he that is holy, 
He that is true, he that hath the key of David, he said, I'm going to give him the keys. Isaiah said that. And the one that has those keys is Jesus. He that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. And this is what he does. He opens the door of faith and the door of opportunity for his uh, work and service, for his churches, for his preachers as well. If you turn to the book of Acts 14, you don't have to turn, just listen. Acts 14, if you will, verse 27. Paul says, And when they were come and gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them, and how He, listen, had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. How He had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 9, it says, Paul says to the church at Corinth, he says, For a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. Paul says there's a door of opportunity, there's a door of service opened unto me, and everything is going to be fine. Not what he said, is it? He says a great door and effectual Effectual means it's, it will produce the desired effects. But he says, and there are many adversaries. Have you ever seen preachers say, well, when things get going rough, I know the Lord's through with me. No, when things get going rough, maybe you ought to just stand up and fight the fight. Amen. See, that's, that's not time to move, that's time to work. Amen. A lot of folks say, oh, it's getting so bad for me, I've got to move to another church. Been bad for me at times too. But I'll guarantee you one thing, if you'll stick it out, God will give you the blessings. And I'm I'm thankful for this group here tonight. I'm thankful for every soul here. Every person. Because I believe that you're here because you want to hear what God's Word has to say. And it has some instructions for it if we'll just listen to it. And it's a great door. Paul says a great door and effectual is open. Effectual. It will produce the desired results and effects. But he says there are many adversaries. He says it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be done. And God opened the door. And Jesus here says He opens the door and no man shuts the door. Now look in verse 8. Hold your place. Revelation 3 verse 8. He says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. I want you to notice three things here. Thou hast a little strength. A little strength. Didn't Paul say that I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me? God can take that little strength and make it enough. Notice three things. A little strength. And has kept my word. These were three things that the Lord was commending them for. You have a little strength. You're depending upon mine. And has kept my word. They stood fast for the word of God. And then, and has not denied my name. Boy, if you have these things going for you, you really have something. If you trust in God's strength and you're faithful to His Word and you do not deny His name, all hell can't win the battle against you. Jesus said, The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Isaiah 54 verse 17. Sharon knows this one. 
No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. So you will not lose. Have that strength, keep his word, and do not deny his name. Now look at verse 9. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. There were some that were claiming claims that they could not uh, verify. Uh, Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. He says, because you're a church of, that loves God and a, a church of brotherly love, Philadelphia means brotherly love, it's missionary and evangelistic, it takes, care, uh, it takes advantage of the opportunities of the open doors of missionary work. And he says, then I'm going to cause them to come and to bow down and worship you. They'll recognize that, you are, that you're being led of God. Now verse 10. Uh, says, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Boy, this is a good verse. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience. This is one thing that every individual and every church in the, every individual in the church needs to learn is to have patience. And then he says, and will keep thee from. From is a key word here in this verse. Look at it. From the hour of temptation. Out of. It means out of the hour of temptation or out of the tribulation that the world is about to face when we find further in the book of Revelation that the great tribulation will come. And he says he's going to deliver his churches, those that meet the conditions of this church, out of that great tribulation. And by the way, that simply means here, I believe, that the church will not go into the tribulation period. It says, out of, from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world. It's going to come to try them that dwell upon the earth. Notice notice that word from, from the hour of temptation, out of the hour of temptation. And then notice a couple of words before that, keep. Keep means to guard thee. Keep means to guard. I will guard thee and take thee out from, out of the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. So he's given them assurance they won't have to go into that. Now look at verse 11. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. You hold faithful to the end so that you'll receive the crown of rejoicing and crown crowns that the Lord has for you. And he says to hold fast. Verse 12 says, He that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. Look at that word pillar. A pillar. In the early church when uh, the Apostle Paul was beginning his ministry, In the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verse 9. Let me give you this verse. Galatians, chapter 2, and verse 9. It says this. It says, And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars. James, Peter, James, and John were pillars in the New Testament church. 
perceive the grace that was given to me, Paul is telling of his experience with them, they gave unto me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go into the heathen and they into the circumcision. That Paul and Barnabas would go who? Go to the Gentiles and and uh, that uh, Peter and James and John, especially Peter, would go to the Jews. And so, uh, Paul is referring to them and says they seem to be pillars. They were pillars in the church. In the book of uh, Jeremiah, chapter 1. Jeremiah, chapter 1. In verse 18. The Lord says concerning Jeremiah, For behold, I have made thee this day a defense city, an iron pillar, and brazen walls against the whole land. He took this man, Jeremiah, and made him a pillar in the Old Testament. But in this passage that we're studying, Revelation 3, verse 12, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. The overcomers here promise to be pillars in the temple. We have, uh, in this simple building that we have, we have the block walls, but every time you see all these going straight up and down, you see this row right here? That's a polyster on the outside. It's a pillar. It's, it's what stabilizes the whole structure to keep it steady and upright. And uh, we have others that are called bond beams right under the window and over the window and up at the ceiling line. And that's filled with concrete above the windows, right at the ceiling line and below the windows and the first layer down there on the foundation, a bond beam. That holds it together the other way. But a pillar, he says, the overcomer will be made a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go no more out. He's in there for good. And he says, And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. You know what the Lord is saying here? This man, this is an overcomer, this church of Philadelphia, he's telling the individual within it, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. If you want to be a pillar in the house of God, you hold fast the word, you be faithful. And you do the things that we've already been studying. And he says, I'm going to write my name. I'll write upon him the name of my God. And the name of the city, New Jerusalem. And he says, I'll write upon him my new name. He's saying, I'm placing my brand upon him that he's mine. This is, indicates ownership and security. You know what the rancher does out there? Those little calves that are born, they put a brand on them. They clip the ears on the sheep and various other things. There are ways to let, uh, to make it known that this little animal, whatever it is, belongs to you. It has your identification mark on it. And the Lord says, I'm going to write, uh, the name of my God. Write upon him the name of my God. And I'm going to write upon him the city, the name of the city of my God, New Jerusalem. That he has a part in that new Jerusalem. Then he says further, <clears throat> I will write upon him my new name. We don't know what that is, but we know it's going to be a, a, a sense of claim upon those that he's talking about here. 
I hope that I'm one of those, don't you, that's a pillar in the temple of God. Now then, verse 13, He that hath an ear, if you want to do these things, by the way, we're to, to read and we're to hear and to keep these things. It says, He that hath an ear, <coughs> a spiritual ear, an open ear, an open mind, an open heart, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So the churches are again mentioned. So it means that all of the messages that we studied thus far we're to pay attention to. Each and every one of them. Now we come to another church. This is the church of the Laodiceans. Verse 14. And unto the angel, messenger, pastor, of the church of the Laodiceans, look at verse 14, write, These things saith the Amen. Jesus is the Amen. He says Amen to all things. He, he is the final, He's the final source of approval. He's the one that says, so be it. He's the one that says, this is what it is. So be it. These things saith the Amen. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Jesus is the faithful and true witness. <coughs> Excuse me. And He's the... He is the beginning of the creation of God. I think we brought out this morning in the message how that He is the creator of all things. By Him there was not anything made that was made. We can go back and there's a whole message on Christ being uh, the author of creation. When it says, look at this verse again. We want to kind of digest as we go along and get as much out of it as is necessary to get the message over. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. The Lord Laodiceans means the rights of the people. The rights of the people. And when you want to compromise, you have to please the people because of their rights. You see, we have so many people in our country today that we've got a lot of politicians that are trying to please the people. Please the people. And everything goes by the polls. Is this a popular idea or unpopular? If it's unpopular, you better look out if you're in politics. Isn't that the story? The rights of the people. Now then, people have rights. And we should be a democratic nation. But on the other hand, when you get so many people that are on the wrong side of morality and on the wrong side of what is right, that demand their rights, they take away the rights of others. And we have that happening today. We have a lot of minority groups that are taking away your rights and mine. And I'm not talking about domestic things or needs for, for food and clothing and shelter and those things. I'm talking about morally minorities. The moral minority. And they have become the moral majority in many instances. And established the rules of morality in our nation. And so we need protection from the rights of the people. Unless you get the right people in office. It's a sad situation. I think it was H.A. Ironside. Ironside that pastored that great uh, Moody Bible uh, church. Years and years ago, H.A. Arnside says, We fought wars to make it a democratic nation, 
and we we fought for the rights of the people and one day we'll want someone to save us from the 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 ones that are like this, the rights of the people, because you'll have people that'll multiply. You know, back in the Old Testament, after the days of Moses, the Bible says there was another generation that came up, that grew, that knew not the Lord. And that's always the danger. The more you get the increase of people that know not the Lord, the more we're in danger of losing what is truly right. It's just something to think about. I'm glad we're in a democratic nation. And I would fight for it again, as I have before. And many of you brethren have too. And all of us stand for it. But on the other hand, do not let... It's kind of like, you know, in the old days you see your movies on television where there's a, a, a mob crowd that comes into the jail and wants to break the guy out and hang him on the, in the highest tree. And what they do, it's mob rule, isn't it? Instead of law and order, they, they, they twist that around and, and claim a man is guilty and do not give him a trial. Well, a lot of times when you get so many uh, negative voices and so many that are doing the wrong thing that try to control things, we're in great danger. That's why we need a lot of prayer and a lot of consideration this day and hour. The church of Laodiceans <clears throat> were like that. They said, we're going to do our own thing. We have our rights. Well, they did have their rights, but they had turned their rights into apostasy and neutrality and indifference. This is what characterizes this church of Laodicea. We'll go on and see what it says about them. <clears throat> Notice, it says in verse 15, The Lord says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm... And neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. You get a cup of coffee, you want it hot, don't you? If you get iced tea, you want it cold. You ever gotten iced tea and it's just just lukewarm? Well, you say, that's sorry tea. You get a cup of coffee and that thing gets real cold. Try to drink cold coffee, you say, that's no good. Jesus says it ought to be one or the other. If you're going to drink iced tea, drink iced tea. If you're going to drink hot coffee, drink hot coffee. And he says, but you're neither, this church was neither cold nor hot. It was not, it didn't apply, it didn't have any appeal whatsoever to the Lord. And he says, because you're not, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now then look at verse 17. He says, because thou sayest. Now, to say one thing and to do one thing is, is something else, isn't it? Verse 17, look at it. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. <clears throat> they seem to be self-satisfied. And knowest not. You know, a lot of people say, but they do not know. <laughs> they say that we're rich. They say, because thou sayest that I am rich. And thou sayest, I'm increased with goods. And have need of nothing. When we get to that place, we seem to be self-satisfied. But we must confess, it says, and Jesus said this, And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Amen. He says, this is your real condition, but you think you've got the other situation going. There's nothing any worse than a church that is self-satisfied and thinks it doesn't have need of anything. 
We have need of the Lord in every aspect of our services, in every aspect of our existence as a church. Whether it's financial or whether it's uh, uh, standing for the Word of God, we have need for that He will keep us where we need to be. Wouldn't you hate to be in a church that thought they had it made in every direction? Boy, we got lots of money. We can build anything we want to build. We, we can do anything we want to do. Uh, we can just mark our own course. But let's come down to reality. We are all dependent upon the Lord. We depend upon God for His uh, spiritual, spiritual guidance and leadership. We try to follow His uh, word, of, word to direct us. We are much in prayer that He will permit and, and answer those things that we have need of. And, and so we're really dependent. I think I told you about Dr. Uh, J. Harold Smith. He used to come on the stations back uh, from Arkansas, Fort Smith, Arkansas, and he preached on the radio. You'd hear him on those Mexico stations for about uh, 20 or 30 years. This is in the older days. And a lot of you knew him, but he's an evangelist and a pastor of the First Baptist Church of Fort Smith, I believe, 38 years, or four, maybe 40 years. But he, he was in a fellowship meeting one time, and, and he, he belonged to the Southern Baptist Convention, but he was in our meeting of World Baptist Fellowship, Independent Baptist uh, Preachers, and we, he, was one of our, he was the main speaker down there in Arlington. <clears throat> and the brethren is always huddling around, finding out, and says, Brother Smith, what kind of Baptist are you? So when he got up to preach his message, he said, I've had a lot of inquiries as to what kind of Baptist I am. And they said, are you a, this kind of Baptist, that or the other? Or are you an independent Baptist? He says, no. He said, I'm a dependent Baptist. Amen. And by the way, all of us are dependent Baptists. We're dependent upon the Lord. We're dependent upon one another. And we're just dependent upon everything. And so let's not get so high and mighty that we think we're, we're independent. These people were self-satisfied. But he, Jesus says you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And then in verse 18, He gives them some directions. He says, they need to procure the things that, of Him that are worth really worthwhile. He says, I counsel thee to buy of Me. Where are you going to get what you need? He says, my counsel is that you buy of Me gold tried in the fire. Divine things under trial. And that thou mayest be rich. This is the riches you need. And he says, And white raiment that thou mayest be clothed. The white robe of His righteousness that we be clothed. When we were, had the little boys and girls to come up front and sing. Used to have them line up here from the least to the greatest. We'll put it that way. And they would stand up there and I'd get out there in the front and I'd lead them. The best thing in my life I ever did do. Now most of you know it. Some of the children know it. Now the best thing in my life I ever did do was take off the old robe and put on the new. The old robe was dirty, all tattered and torn. The new robe was spotless. It had never been worn. So it's a symbolical of taking off the old robe of, of uh, our self-righteousness and putting on the robe of Christ's righteousness. See, ours is very bad, in very, very bad shape, but the Lord's is in good shape. God took all the fig leaves off of Adam and Eve and He clothed them with coats of skins. Those coats of skins had to be provided for them by a blood sacrifice. 
something had to die to provide a coat of skin. Where do you get skins? But from animals. You have to, something has to be sacrificed. And so he provided them a sacrificial robe. And he said, this is what you need, Adam and Eve. You don't need these fig leaves that you've manufactured for yourself because that's unrighteousness and that's self-righteousness. And that will never do. That will never cover. But he says you need these new ones. Okay, let's go on with this quickly. Uh, Verse 18. And white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. They needed to have their eyes anointed by the Holy Spirit to really see spiritual things. You see, the Lord has to anoint our eyes. The Lord has to give us spiritual insight. And unless He gives us sight, we do not have sight. They had, they, this place was famous for its eye save. What does say first of all you do? You put it on your eye and it, it burns. And it blinds. And then it relieves. And then you can see. Isn't that what Jesus did in uh, John chapter 9 where He made clay? And He put it upon the eyes of the blind man. He anointed his eyes. It means He spread the clay over His eyes. Well, Can you imagine? A man can't see anyway. And then you cover his eyes with clay. You know he can't see now. But Jesus says, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And he went and washed and he came seeing. And sometimes we need our eyes anointed with eye save to see spiritual things. And then in verse 19 and 20 and 21. It says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. When the Lord does, remember this is church of the Laodiceans, a church of apostasy, a church of neutrality. They were neutral on things. They would not take a stand for anything. They were indifferent to everything. And he says here, and they were self-satisfied. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So it was not that he didn't love this church in spite of all the bad things. He said he rebukes and chastens. Now when God rebukes us and chastens us, he does it because of love. He says, be zealous, therefore, and repent. Think about rebuking and chastening. The Bible says, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. If you had a father or mother that had children that were disobedient and did things wrong and they didn't correct them, they would not love that child. But when they correct them, it shows that they love that child. They don't want that child to be that way. That's what God does to us. 